0: So why don't you bow and let's pray, and we're going to dive right in. God, I do thank you that uh, we got uh, some people here today, fifteen hundred or so, that uh, care enough about their walk with you, care enough about their lives, even if they're just in a seeking mode of you, to show up at church on a Sunday morning to uh, want to find out more about you. And God, I thank you that you've given us your Word, uh, so that as we talk now, hopefully very intelligently and passionately about you that we're not shooting in the dark, we're not taking a stab at who you are and what you're about, but that we can have some surety, some confidence uh, that the things we talk about are true. So God, thank you that you've recorded the Old Testament, the New Testament, 66 books spanning over a 1500 year period of time that gives us intelligent, livable information that we can apply to our lives about you. And so Lord, we want to do that right now. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, this is a true story. In 2006, a Ukrainian, ma- a Ukrainian man went to the Kiev Zoo and in front of a crowd of unsuspecting watchers on a busy Sunday afternoon lowered himself by rope into the middle of the lion's den where four lions were basking in the sun. And when he hit the crowd, he, or hit the ground, he yelled up to the crowd, God will save me if he exists. Then he took his shoes off, walked up to a fully grown lioness who immediately knocked him down, grabbed him by the throat, severing his carotid artery, and by the time the authorities were to get to him a few minutes later, he was dead. A horrifying scene for everybody who was watching. And as I read that a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this morning, I thought, you know, the moral of that story is that if you want to prove the existence of God, take a seminary course. Don't go into a lion's den. I'm serious. I mean, I don't mean to have a lack of compassion on the gentleman. He was obviously disturbed. But if you want to prove God's existence, that's not the way to do it. I think all of us know that by about this time in our lives. And yet some of you, in being fair, are saying, but Jamie, it happened. I mean, it happened like that in the Bible. It happened to Daniel in the story that we're looking at today. And yes, it did. But what we need to recognize right off the bat is that a story like that happened in a very different setting and for a very different reason. You see, Daniel was not looking to go into a lion's den. He certainly didn't go there on purpose. And he certainly didn't do it to test God's existence, did he? His is a very different account than one we might read about today. But it's a story that nonetheless has some very life-changing things for you and me on how we can and should approach God and that as we do approach God on His terms, what He does as a result. You're going to like where we're going here this morning. And so let's review the first part of this story just so that we're all on the same page. The year is about 539 BC, just shortly after that. And Daniel is a good Jewish man who's been exiled in Babylon for over 65 years. He's now over 80 years old. So picture a very, very old man, not some young middle-aged guy or even a teenage boy, in that lion's den there. He's old by any culture's standards. When he got to Babylon in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar was the king. But now, over half a century later, the Medo-Persian Empire has defeated Babylon, and a guy by the name of Cyrus is the reigning king. As a quick side note, some of you already noticed that our text says in chapter 6, verse 1, that Darius the Mede is the king now. But most scholars posit that Darius is either a pseudonym for Cyrus, in other words, a name or a title for Cyrus, and that was common back then for kings to have various names and titles, or Darius could be one of the generals under Uh, I'm sorry, Darius could be one of the generals under Cyrus, a guy by the name of Guburu. I actually think that Darius is actually another name for Cyrus here for the simple reason that in Daniel chapter 5 verse 31 it tells us that Darius was 62 when he defeated the Babylonians and we know from historical sources outside the Old Testament that Cyrus defeated Babylon in 539 BC and was about 62 years old. And so it seems like just too much of a coincidence for these guys not to be the same person. So back to our story. Darius or Cyrus is the king, and just like Nebuchadnezzar, he likes Daniel a lot. Did you pick up on that? And so we find Daniel holding this high position of leadership in this newly formed Medo-Persian empire. In fact, he's one of the top three leaders under Darius, and he's even looking to become now the second in command because the king found him so good to have around. But as you and I both know, with responsibility comes risk. And in this case, the responsibility of high leadership brought the risk of jealousy. And sure enough, the other governmental leaders called satraps become jealous of this not-so-welcome immigrant, and they devise a plan for his downfall. And yet this guy was so godly that they had trouble devising a plan to bring him down. The normal temptations that you and I that would bring us down aren't going to bring Daniel down. He's just too good. And so the only thing they could do, the only foothold that they could even get in his life would be to pit his faith in God against the secular culture of that day. So it says in verse 5 there that the only complaint they could level against him was, and I quote, in connection with the law of his God. And so here's their plan. They convinced the king, Darius Cyrus, to make a law, an ordinance, as our translation says, that basically says that anybody who prays to God or man for the next 30 days, anybody other than the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Where you and I have seen in our day and age is not a good place to be on a sunny Sunday afternoon. You see, these manipulative and jealous leaders knew that they couldn't keep Daniel from praying. Isn't that cool? Could anybody keep you from praying for 30 days to Jesus? I hope not. And they couldn't keep Daniel from praying to his God for 30 days. Not God who had rescued him and delivered him in so many ways. And these manipulative and jealous leaders also knew that kings like Darius are very much in love with their own power and they don't mind making temporary laws that do nothing but increase people's allegiance to them. So the law goes into effect. Anyone who prays to any God or man other than Darius will be dinner at the zoo for the lions. And as we would expect, Daniel is caught praying. Folks should have to be blind to not notice him praying. He's on the top floor of his house with the windows wide open facing Jerusalem where the temple of God had been for hundreds of years. He's on his knees praying three times a day. Psalm 55 mentions that this is a good thing to do. And so they rat him out. And it's here where things get interestingly complex. Because you see, as I mentioned earlier, Darius really liked Daniel a lot. He was just about ready to make him second in command. But he hadn't given any forethought to what would happen if Daniel, if he made this law and that Daniel couldn't obey this law. And in the Medo-Persian Empire, if a law was made, even the king who made it could not abrogate it. But we see the same thing in the book of Esther with the king Ahasuerus. Makes a law, couldn't go against even his own law that he was made. It was just part of the custom back then. And so the text says that Darius was much distressed and even worked all day to try to get Daniel off the hook. Did you notice that there? In fact, it says in the margins in the original text here that he even went to the satraps and tried to use a legislative maneuver known as reconciliation, but it didn't work. (laughs) It didn't work at all. Some of you are saying, is that true? I was just seeing if you are awake. It's not true. But they didn't deem it possible. Get it? Deem it possible. All right, I'll, I'll get off it. So all day he's trying to get uh, Daniel off the hook, but he can't do it. He can't undo his own, own law. So Daniel is just about ready to have to go into the lion's den. And at this point in the story, if you've been tracking with me, we're now halfway through this account. We're really at the pinnacle of the story. And before we go any further, let's notice our first of two takeaways for you and me. And it's point one in your outline, and it's simply this. And that is what we learned, is that in a fallen world, God's people are always going to be at risk when we are faithfully following Him. Have you realized that yet? In a fallen world that, as we're going to see, is not our home. Man, we're just passing through, the Bible says. We are always going to be at risk when we are faithfully following God. And so don't miss the action here, folks, going on with Daniel and the Medo-Persian Empire. I mean, Daniel is flying high with both his reputation as well as his position within this culture and within the government. It says in verse 3, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him focus on that little phrase excellent spirit it simply means that Daniel had a great attitude and a strong work ethic he was a great guy to have on staff it could be referring something to his spiritual nature and that Darius noticed something about his spiritual nature but that's not really clear here Uh, More than anything, it's just saying that he was really good at what he did, and he did it so well that he was just shy of becoming the CEO of this whole enterprise, only second to the chairman of the board. So in our language today, the stock options were all his. Retirement never looked so good for Daniel. Not bad for a first-generation forced immigrant. And so you would think, if you didn't know the Bible very well, that nothing could go wrong, right? I mean, you would think that an 80-year-old guy that got himself into this kind of vocation is kind of bulletproof, that it's a good circumstance, but not so, not at all. Because as we noted earlier, with responsibility and blessing comes risk. Or as you and I learned when we were little guys and gals, the higher you go, the harder you fall. Uh, The higher you go, the more you become a target in this world for opposing forces, You've all heard the phrase, you got a target on your back. And what you need to see here is that in Daniel 6, for God's people living and walking with him in a fallen world and culture, no matter how good it seems at times, you still have a target on your back because you live in a fallen world in which God says, don't get too comfortable. And when you think about it, folks, though this is a very sobering truth we're honoring here, it only makes sense. It only makes sense that if truly this is a fallen world, and if truly, as the Bible says, this is not our home, and if truly we're just passing through, then there's got to be multiple opposing forces that would make it a necessity for you and I to never forget our vulnerability, our risk for being faithful followers of God and Jesus in this life. In fact, we're just getting started here. When you get right down to it, there are essentially three opposing forces for anybody who ever dares to take the high road and follow Jesus faithfully in this world. Did you know that? Three opposing forces that you become a threat to when you start to take your walk with Jesus Christ in a serious way. Let me give them to you real quickly here and show you the Scriptures. First, the Bible says the first opposing force is your own flesh or what we call your own sinful nature. Look at Galatians 5, verse 17. It couldn't be more clear. It says, For the the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Let me ask you a leading question Have you ever experienced that in your life? Have you? Have you ever wanted to do the right thing, whether it be in your marriage, or with your kids, or at your job, or even in church, in your spiritual life? You want to do the right thing, and you're dead set on doing it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And all of a sudden, something in you just wells up and prevents you from doing it. Have you ever had that experience? I, I think all of us have. What's going on there? How do you explain that? The Bible says that that's our flesh. It's our fallen, sinful nature that even as believers still wars against us. It's an enemy of the Christian life, but it's an enemy within. As that were not enough, notice the second enemy of the Christian life, and that's what we call the evil one, or Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So it's not just an enemy within that you and I have, but also an enemy without. We're, we're barraging on both sides of it with temptation and complication in our lives. And then as if that were not enough, this one really takes the cake. The third enemy, and I don't mean to be combative here, but the Scriptures affirm this, is the world and at times culture. Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, in this world you're going to have tribulation." And it's interesting that the context there just doesn't mean in this world, but in this world and because of this world, you're going to have tribulation. Now, there's, there's going to be times where culture around you does not applaud your wonderful walk with Jesus Christ. They're not going to sit there and say, gosh, it's so great that you became a Christian. You just smell like roses to me. They're not going to do that. No, they're going to be threatened. They're going to be frustrated that you're raining on their parade. At the very least, that you're not condoning what they do. And at times, they're even going to come at you. That's what we see happening here in the book of Daniel. That's what many of us have experienced when we decided to follow Christ. And the truism that you don't want to miss here, folks, is that the more one is a faithful and consistent follower of God and Jesus in the world, the more of a threat you are to these opposing forces the more of a target that you become to your flesh, the evil one, and even this world. And so here's the point. If anyone ever told you to just accept Jesus, and everything will be golden. If anyone has ever told you, as even a lapsed believer in Christ, that if you just take your walk with God seriously, then everything will be good, they lied. They have no idea what they're talking about. In fact, at times it's the opposite. The more that you stridently follow Christ in a faithful and consistent manner, the more of a threat and target that you are for the forces of this world, your flesh and the evil one, now that you're not standing up for what they stand up for. you got a target on your back. And don't hear me wrong, folks. I'm certainly not saying that there won't be great and wonderful benefits as well for following Christ that make all of this worth it. Certainly there will be things like joy and peace and answered prayer and the movement of god in your life and deep character change tangible blessings at times not to mention eternal life forever with god but if we think that in the midst of all of this that it's going to be some pollyannish pain-free trouble-free cakewalk of a christian existence we're fooled in a fallen world no matter how good it seems god's people are always going to be at risk in this place that is not our home, at risk simply for following him. That's the way it was for Daniel, and that's how it's going to be for you and me as well. And we need to recognize and honor this. So here's my question before we move on. I think it's a great question to ask. How much of a target are you right now? Isn't that a great question to ask? How much of a target are you? How much of a threat are you to the opposing forces around you? And I don't mean that you need to be an obnoxious Christian jerk that gets people to hate you. We've got enough of those in the world. But when it comes to living out your walk with Jesus in a consistent and faithful manner, and you know what I mean. How consistent and faithful are you to the degree that the evil one, the world, and even your flesh are not comfortable sitting idly by as you please God with your faith and action? Do an assessment this morning. How much of a threat are you to the forces against you? A few weeks ago when I was traveling, I uh, took with me a book that I'm wanting to read for a while here by a pastor by the name of Ed Dobson called The Year of Living Like Jesus. Ed's got a very interesting story. For 18 years, he was the senior pastor at Calvary Undenominational Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, And in about his mid-50s, about nine years ago, he was diagnosed with a brutal disease that many of you know of called ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Usually, if you've had a friend that has that or a family member, uh, the Lord takes them in about, well, two to three years. But for Ed's, it's a very slow-progressing ALS. They didn't know this in the beginning, and he has lived nine years with it, but obviously not trouble-free. So a few years back, he resigned as the senior pastor of Calvary. It was just too hard for him to, uh, t- to handle. And, and he became their pastor emeritus, kind of like Daryl is for us now. Still so has an office at the church and leads Bible studies from time to time. But he's kind of living a, l- a little more of a different pace, working with some colleges and seminaries, going down to Florida more regularly, things like that. And he decided that in this kind of no-man's land that he's in right now, that he was going to spend an entire year living as much as he could like Jesus you say what does that mean well he decided to grow his hair long and grow a beard he decided that he was going to eat kosher food which jesus would have certainly done as a good jew he decided he would observe some of the festivals and he decided that he would read the gospels at least all the way through once a week once every couple of weeks and try to live as best he could everything that jesus said and then he wrote a book about it he did this in about the year 2008 and it's kind of a fascinating book chronicling his journey It's, it's a good read And at the end of the book, he goes all the way back to the beginning, and he recounts a conversation that he had with his senior pastor, whose name is Jim. A conversation that he had where he outlined to Jim what he was going to do for the next year and what Jim challenged him with. I want to read it for you. This is very instructive for you and I today. He says, I decided to talk to Jim at the beginning of my one-year commitment to live like Jesus. I wanted his advice. I said, I'm sure you've noticed I'm growing my beard. I'm trying to be like Jesus. Throughout this year, i made a commitment to read through the Gospels every week, keep the Sabbath, eat kosher, observe the feasts and festivals. Jim listened carefully. Then in typical Jim fashion, he began asking tough questions. Are you going to walk everywhere, he asked. I said, probably not, but you raise a good question. He asked, are you going to sell everything you have and give it away? How in the world would I do that, I responded. He said, maybe you need to talk with the lawyer and temporarily turn all your possessions over to your wife. He asked, are you gonna fast and pray in the wilderness for 40 days? I said, I'm definitely not gonna fast for 40 days in the wilderness given the fact that I have this disease and that I'm supposed to eat as much as possible. Fasting for an extended period of time would not be a good idea. But I do plan to fast for at least a day and go out into the wilderness. Dobson says he moved on to ask, are you going to pray all night and then choose 12 disciples? I said, dude, I'm not Jesus. I'm not building a church so I don't think I'll be choosing 12 people to walk around with me. He asked, are you going to follow Jesus in pain and suffering? I looked at him. Don't just do the easy things, he said. Growing your beard, keeping the Sabbath, eating kosher, and going to the synagogue are easy. Do the hard things as well. I hear you, I said. Do the, don't do the easy stuff, do the hard stuff. Then he said, remember the time you had a kiddie pool brought up on the platform in the middle of one of your sermons and you talked about total commitment? Of course I remember, I said. It was one of those mornings nobody ever forgot. Jim said, you said before that Sunday that you were going to take your shoes and socks off and splash around in the kiddie pool as a sign of commitment. But I told you you needed to jump all the way into the pool from the platform. I said, yeah, and I told you that if I did that, it would ruin my suit and my shoes. He said, but you did it. And that is what you should do with the teachings of Jesus. At the end of the year, you should feel that following Jesus is a very difficult and painful thing to do. And Dobson ends the book by saying, he was right. He was right. Let me ask you a question. Is following Jesus for you today a very painful and difficult thing for you to do? Yes or no? I sometimes get scared of where evangelical culture is today, our, our Christian subculture, because the way that I see some, if not many, folks following Jesus is that it's a nice little tack-on to all the other things in their lives. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like this, this nice thing where they can go to church and do their thing, and maybe attend a midweek Bible study because we're conservative and Bible-believing and all that, and maybe serve in a soup kitchen now and then. But, but it's like we tack our Christian faith onto our lives, it's not so central that it actually becomes a very difficult and painful and arduous thing for us. Because folks, I can tell you, over and over again in the Bible, when people really took their faith seriously, there were opposing forces against them. And they felt the threat, and they felt the target on their back, and there were times that life didn't go the way that they wanted it to go. But please hear, that's part and parcel of the journey. That should actually tell us that we're right where God wants us when we experience things like that. Daniel had everything going for him, and he was really walking with God. And then he ran into opposing forces. And it teaches us that in a fallen world, God's people are always going to be at risk when we're faithfully following him. Now, with that understanding, there's another key thing, however, that the story that we're all familiar with teaches us. And this one, though true and profound, we need to explain with utter clarity and precision. And so here it is. Here's point two on your outline. And that is that once we understand that that life is going to throw us curveballs at times, God is in the habit of regularly delivering those who trust Him. It's true that God says that even though in a fallen world, they're going to be opposing forces against us. He is in the habit of regularly delivering us when we trust him. So, so let's try to really understand this here, folks, because some of you are skeptical. As the story goes on here in Daniel chapter 6, what you don't want to miss is an often repeated word or theme that is really the key point of the entire chapter. Let me show you. Look at Daniel 6 verse 14. It says, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind, here it is, to deliver Daniel. And he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. Then look at verse 16. It says, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, here it is again, deliver you. Then look at verse 20. It says, As he, Darius, came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then when Daniel is delivered and Darius is saying all these wonderful things about God, look at what he says in verse 27. He says, He, God, delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. I don't know about you folks, but I think this theme of deliverance, saving and rescuing is kind of the point here, right? I mean, it's like repeated over and over again, like a scratch CD, deliver, 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 deliver. I mean, that's the point of this entire chapter, that God delivers people when they're in trouble. And, and, and it's interesting. Though Daniel 1 through 6 is not written in Hebrew, I mentioned earlier, I kind of threw in that it's, it's written in Aramaic. Like, why would it be written in Aramaic? Well, it's, it's a secular culture, and most scholars think that it was written originally in Aramaic to kind of set the tone of the secular culture around it. And, and this word for deliverance here is the Aramaic word shazib, which is actually a word from the Akkadian language that literally means to rescue, to save, to deliver from something. But get this, in its most rudimentary form, it means to restore to an original condition. Isn't that interesting? Kind of like you're restoring a car, like maybe an old 53 Chevy, to restore it to its original condition. That's what this word means. And so Daniel is in a good circumstance originally, high position, good reputation. Then he gets himself into a bad circumstance. He's in a lion's den. But now he was delivered, restored to his original circumstance, a high position with a good reputation, all because of God's movement and power in his life. It's Shazib. God delivered him in his life. You get the idea. And don't miss as well that this deliverance was unleashed based on Daniel's trust in God's ability to do this look at verse 23 this is very key it says then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God that's the key here he trusted in God and God delivered him As we learned in chapter 3, wasn't this great. He believed that God could, he asked that God would, and then he accepted from his hand what God gave. It's a non-demanding trust. Daniel's doing the same thing here. And God came through. Now, let's wrestle with this idea of deliverance for a moment. Because let's face it, God doesn't always seem to work this way in our lives. Give me a head nod that you're with me on that, right? So does that mean that we don't have trust? Does that mean that we're not faithful? Does that mean that God is not good or that he's not acting this way anymore today? I don't think it means any of that. What I think it means is that we might not fully understand what this idea of deliverance is about and get this, the various forms that it comes in in our lives. And to fully understand deliverance in the few moments we have left here this morning, I want you to follow me to the New Testament And I want you to follow me to a book in the New Testament that many of you have not read, let alone mastered. It's the book of 2 Corinthians. It's a book that's actually kind of strange in its orientation, but I'm telling you, it's the textbook on deliverance in the New Testament and even in the Old. So let me walk you through some things here in this book, and you're going to come out of here today with a very, very good understanding to apply to your life about how and in what ways God wants to deliver you in your life. So let's start basic. Let's start at the beginning. Look at verses 8 through 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's going to restate the Daniel thesis here. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Ever been there? Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. Now here's the key. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Whoa. So he's basically saying the same thing we just learned in Daniel 6, right? That that God is in the habit of delivering his people and he's hoping and trusting that God's going to deliver him continually again. But what does that mean when he says he's going to deliver us? Have you ever thought about that? See, I think the average Christian today means that God's going to deliver me. And I get this, on my terms, in my way, the way I think I should be delivered. You ever found yourself saying that? I have. Well, God, I think the best way to deliver me is this. I think the best way to deliver me is this. And if you're, we're kind of like that guy who drops something in the lion's den. And if you're God, you're going to deliver me that way. But you see, Paul the Apostle learns throughout this whole book of 2 Corinthians that is not true. That there's three ways that God will deliver you. And get this, he's always going to give you at least one of them. He's always going to give you one. So, so what's the first way? first way is that God at times will deliver us from our circumstances. He will deliver us right out of them, just like the, lion and the Dan, uh, Daniel in the lion's den. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, verses 32 and 33. It said Paul says at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Happens all the time in the Bible. God paved the way for Paul to be delivered from his circumstances, just like Daniel. So you got the Exodus event, you got Elijah in the desert with Jezebel chasing him, you got David and his enemies, you got Daniel in the lion's den. So many stories we're all familiar with of God delivering us from our circumstances. And guess what? He still does that today. But then notice the second kind of deliverance Paul outlines in 2 Corinthians here. What I label God delivering us in our circumstances. Now we're getting somewhere. He doesn't just deliver us from them, though we should pray for that, and we will. But he sometimes chooses to deliver us in them. What does that mean? Well, it's fascinating. In the very next chapter, after chapter 11 here, where Paul talks about God delivering him from his circumstances, he tells another story. And this time he tells a story of one of the opposing forces that are against the Christian life, the evil one, had given him this, this messenger, this, this thorn in the flesh. He never says what it is. Some think maybe it was his poor eyesight. Some maybe his diminutive failing physical health. Some think maybe some depression in his life. We have no idea. But there's some type of bothersome thing that the evil one brought into Paul's life. So what do you do when that happens? He prays that God would deliver him from this circumstance. And God doesn't. Look at verses 8 through 10 of 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, deliver me from this. But he said to me, by grace is sufficient for you for my, don't miss this, power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities, because when I am weak, then I am strong." So, folks, if we're reading this right, sometimes deliverance comes in the form of God's power that brings contentment and strength so that we can make it through what we're going through he delivers us in but not necessarily from our circumstances and what you need to know is that the bible talks about this all over the place as well that god gives a sense of his presence or gives people power to persevere to go through what they're going through he gives them peace he says i'm not going to take you out of this lion's den but guess what you're going to experience me in it And by experiencing me in it, you're going to be okay. You know, many times we sing these songs on Sunday morning. I think we sing them when I'm even thinking about them. I know I do. And in the first service, we were singing that one song. I think it was the second song we sung. We said that he is my delight and my reward. Do you remember singing that? He's my delight and my reward. For the first time, I've been singing that song for 30 years, ever since I became a Christian. For the first time, you know what hit me as I sung that? Am I really content with the fact of God alone being my delight and my reward? Or do I demand more from Him? I think sometimes we say, you know, God, I I like the fact that you're my delight and my reward, but I really want out of this situation. And I really want my finances turned around. And I really want my marriage to become all that I want it to be. And I want my kids to turn out really well. And I want my emotions to start working right. And I I want, I want, I want, I want. Not bad things to want, it's just that then we go to church and we sing a hymn and say, he's my delight and my reward. And we sit there and go, hey, maybe there's a conflict here. Is it just me or is there a conflict going on here? Are you okay at times? Is it well with your soul that he becomes your delight and your reward, that he delivers you in your circumstances but not necessarily from them? Because Paul had to learn. He had to learn that 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 messenger, that, that thorn in the flesh was still there. But he was delivered. In, in that circumstance and and then not just from not just in but the third thing paul learned is it's there are sometimes even that god delivers after our circumstances after the whole thing's done now look at second corinthians 4 verses 14 through 17 this is so revealing paul says knowing that he who raised the lord jesus will raise us also with jesus and bring us with you into his presence Then verse 17, for these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. (laughs) One of the things that blows me away about 2 Corinthians is that when Paul says these light momentary afflictions, do you guys know what he's talking about? He's talking about being beaten to an inch of his life. He's talking about floating in an open sea with like no help around him. He's talking about being abandoned by his best friends. I mean, do you call those light and momentary afflictions in your life? I don't. I sit there and say those are pretty heavy things. I wish I could be delivered from these things. What's Paul's mindset there in verse 17? For these light and momentary afflictions is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all. What's going on there? Paul knew that some of his problems and circumstances, folks, were going to have deliverance after this life, in the next world with its glory and the full presence of God. And please realize this is no less a deliverance than the other two types. It's just that it's kind of a delayed deliverance that we hope for and look forward to, but very, very powerful. So God delivers us from our circumstances. He delivers us in our circumstances. He even delivers us after our circumstances. But make no mistake, folks. He delivers. He's constantly moving in and through our lives if we trust him. He's always up to something to deliver us. We just have to ask him and trust him. I I love how Eugene Peterson, a profound pastor and author, says it in his book to pastors entitled five smooth stones of pastoral work. Look up here on the screen. He says, the gospel message says you don't live in a mechanistic world ruled by necessity. You don't live in a random world ruled by chance. You live in a world ruled by the God of Exodus and Easter. He will do things in you that neither you nor your friends would have supposed possible. Do you believe that here this morning? It's true. You and I do not live in a world of some blind and personal force. We don't live in a world in which mechanistic determinism is going to determine our future. You and I live in a world in which God exists and God is sovereign. And the reality is, is that He is a God who will celebrate in two weeks, can raise His Son from the dead. And so of course He can deliver you and I. It's just we have to ask Him, and then as we learned in chapter 3, accept from His hand what He gives And that as we accept from his hand what he gives, it's always going to be either from, in, or after our circumstances. It will. We have set our hope on him that he will deliver us. And he will deliver. So here's what I want to do here this morning as we wrap up. We're going to go to our uh, elders fund offering here in a few minutes. As many of you know, we take up a special offering once a month at the end of our service for those who are in need in our community, and our church. All of it goes directly to them. Uh, But before we do that, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for any of you who resonate with this morning here and this idea of wanting to be delivered. You're saying, what are you talking about? Some of you are going through health problems in which you would love deliverance. From them, in them, maybe even after them. Uh, Some of you are going through a marital breakdown right now in which, man, you really want some deliverance. Some of you are going through financial hardship, a job search. You want some deliverance some of you are wrestling with your kids in certain areas you want deliverance some of you are wrestling with emotions you just don't quite understand you want deliverance you get the picture circumstances you want deliverance and i want to to end our service today we're not going to end we're actually going to pray and then we're going to sing a song but as we come to the end i want us to to pray about these things in our lives because this i know daniel prayed god moved and answered so here's what i want you to do the ushers are going to come forward right now and stand here and get ready for our offering and uh, if you want prayer for a certain area of deliverance in your life, just between you and God, I want you to stand right now. I want you to stand. I want you to be counted for. If you want to be prayed for right now in some area of your life to be delivered, and you and, you and God know what it is, stand right now, please. And I'm going to close this here in a minute by praying. I love you guys. I really do. I love you, and I, and I, and I know that you're looking to the Lord right now. You're looking to Him and asking Him for deliverance in your life. And so for those of you who are sitting, I would ask you to join me in prayers. we pray for our brothers and sisters right now who are standing. So let's every head bow and let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we have learned today, or at least been affirmed once again today, that you are in the habit, the regular habit, of delivering your people in this fallen world. And Lord, we learn that in this fallen world, when we take a stand for you and we follow you, we have a huge target on our back and we're at great risk. And yet, Lord, even at great risk, you constantly move and you deliver us. And so, Lord, for each of the people standing here right now, I want to pray as their pastor and as their friend for them. And, God, we would pray that whatever the issue might be for them, whether it be health or a relational issue or an issue with their vocation or job, an issue involving somebody else in their lives, Lord, so many issues that we want to be delivered in and from, that, God, I pray you would provide deliverance for them. They've been looking to you. They're looking to you right now, Lord, for your movement in their life. And as one who stands and takes a stand for you, Lord, we would ask that you would move in their lives. And Lord, if I don't miss my guess, their heart's cry would be that you deliver them from their circumstance. That, Lord, you would, just like Daniel in the lion's den, pull them up out of the muck and mire and place them upon solid ground. And Lord, we would pray that that would happen for them. That, God, you would deliver them in such a way that they would be able to say, looking back, only god and give praise and glory to you would you do that in their lives we pray and father we pray too that if it's not in your will that you deliver them from then would you deliver them in their circumstances lord we have so many stories of people that maybe you didn't cure but you healed and you brought a healing to their life that gives them contentment and presence and a sense of your joy and your peace that again could only come from you god would you deliver them in their circumstances lord would you remind each person standing here that as they look to you as they follow your son Jesus to so that ultimate, final deliverance that for 2,000 years, saints have waited for until their dying breath, that it's going to be theirs when they go to be with you. And Lord, may that hope of full presence with you, full eternal life with you, may that well up within their souls and also be a form of deliverance waiting for them. God, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you that it comes wrapped up to us in Jesus our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to sing one last song. I encourage you just to give your heart to God right now, and then we'll be dismissed.